I get colleagues who will come up to me who will say, you know, it just dawned on me that you you are a refugee who like came here as a teenager and now you're you're serving with us in Congress. And I say this is what happens when you center people in the policies that you create. Hi, and welcome to Displaced on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Ravi Gurumurthy. And I'm Grant Gordon. This is the show to listen to if you want to better understand the refugee crisis and the causes and consequences of war. This season, we are focusing on three important issues shaping displacement. To date, we've covered the future of war, and now we're turning our attention to the process of refugee resettlement. Over the last two years, the numbers of refugees entering the U.S. has fallen dramatically. And yet the need for resettling refugees has gone up. 1.4 million people are now in need of resettlement because they can't return home, because their countries are still at war, or they can't stay in the places that they've fled to. They need a new home. Today, we have a very exciting guest, Congresswoman Elon Omar. Congresswoman Omar is the first Muslim woman elected to Congress, having easily won election in Minnesota's 5th Congressional District. She's also a Somali refugee who immigrated to the United States as a teenager. She's the perfect person to talk to to both understand her personal experience as well as dive into the politics of this moment as it relates to refugees and refugee resettlement. And with Congresswoman Omar, we wanted to get into two things. One was the experience of being a refugee and how we can improve the resettlement experience. And secondly, how do we change the politics around refugees? How do we persuade this country and more countries to open their doors? Congresswoman Omar has been in the news recently for a number of controversies, but we want to use this time to actually focus on refugee resettlement, which she is uniquely suited to talk about, given that she has been a refugee that's resettled and currently represents a district that has a lot of refugees who live there. So here's our conversation with Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. There's a really lovely photo that you posted on Twitter, I think a few weeks ago, of you and your dad arriving at Washington, D.C. airport on the day that you were, I think it was the eve that you were sworn in um, to Congress. And you said that it was 23 years ago that you arrived at that very same airport when you just left the refugee camp in, in Kenya. And I just wondered, can you actually remember back to that time when you first set foot in the airport and, and what was going through your head? Oh, I, I, I don't, I don't think I fully remember. Um, we had, I feel like one of like the longest journeys to, to getting here. Our layover was um, almost a, a day long. And so I think I vaguely remember being surprised how the airport here in, in the U.S. was very much different than the Amsterdam airport we were in and not in a good way. And I remember um, being really excited about what awaited us. One of the things that we're trying to do here is understand how to best support refugees who are resettled into the United States. And when you look back on your personal experience, what were the crucial ingredients that helped you succeed? And fundamentally, what does this tell us about what effective resettlement programming should look like? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I, I suppose oftentimes we forget the kind of traumatic situations um, if agree, refugees are, are arriving from um, and, and the kind of experiences that they might have had that, that will inform their life here. And I, I think also we, we forget that not all refugees that are arriving in the United States are monolithic in, in their 
experiences as well. And mm-hmm. and I think those things are really important, you know. So for for my family, um, before the war, we were a very affluent family who who had lots of resources and and people who understood um, how how to function fully in a city and and take advantage of their 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 surroundings and relationships and networks in order to be able to navigate a society much better um, than some people who might come from remote parts of a country and then be forced into living in a refugee camp and then arrive here with little uh, ability to navigate um, a society as large as ours here in the United States. And for, for our family, many of the tools that were available to us um, with um, the resettlement agency, with neighbors, with the school systems, all of all of those tools were tools that we could use and recognize how to use. And for for my father, the challenge really was just figuring out how to navigate a, a daughter in in middle school and 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 walk me through you know the the process of integrating myself in into society here i tell the story about how when i arrived in middle school they drop us off from from the bus and i didn't realize that everybody could go into the school and mm-hmm. so I would, I would, I would sit. There was a bench um, where you you got dropped off, and I, I sit and I watched through the window as kids went into the school and would see some of them eating breakfast. And it was still cold. It was in March, and so um, mm-hmm. I remember one of like a week in, maybe ten days in. One of the hall monitors uh, came outside and took took me in as he noticed that I was shaking and probably didn't have a proper jacket and and wanted to make sure. And so he took me into to the cafeteria to get to get food. And I I remember thinking like I don't know how to ask him if I'm gonna get in trouble. And my dad didn't tell me mm-hmm. I could go into the school before classes started. <laughs> Um, and so there are a lot of those kind of small challenges and struggles for for some of us who who are accustomed to to, to a system similar to to what we have, and I can't even you know imagine what what some of the struggles might even be for people who not only have a language but have never seen what inside of a school looks like or have never you know, had had any kind of formalized system um, to to operate in. And so I'm very um, sympathetic in 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 sharing, you know, this the struggles that we have, but in making sure that people don't think about my success um, as as one that that is readily available to to everyone because there are many more um, refugees and immigrants who are, resilient, but just have greater challenges than the ones I had. It's interesting. I was talking to a colleague at the International Rescue Committee who resettles refugees and had also come Mm -hmm. from Kenya and he'd come from Mm -hmm. Nairobi. And he was saying that Mm -hmm. um, 
when he resettles refugees who spent all their time in a refugee camp and have known no independent living, the shock of having to adapt is much, much greater than the one he felt. And it sounds like it was a similar experience for you. You had a lot of resources and you were affluent beforehand. But do we need to do more when we're trying to resettle those refugees who are basically coming from a situation where perhaps they are highly dependent on um, on services within a camp? Yeah, I mean, and I think even just uh, recognizing that that there is that difference, right? That everyone who is a refugee is not monolithic in in their experiences allows us to not be blinded to to their to the specific needs that people might have, and I think it will inform um, how prepared. Uh, resettlement agencies are once the refugee arrives in the United States. It informs how others interact with them. You know, I mean, I, I, I would have people who were quite agitating because they would, you know, they, 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 they talk to us as if we've never seen what, what shoes look like or, you know, um, would like describe, I mean, my dad just used to have the hardest time because people would describe a bed to him um, or mm-hmm. a car and, and they, they, they couldn't even stop themselves to realize that this was a man who was speaking to them in English, who obviously was educated, <laughs> who, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, yeah. but, but, but there are people who need that. And so, um, I think once we, once we identify the, 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 the different needs that people have, we are able to also use our resources differently, and I think that in itself is is much more helpful to to helping immigrants succeed uh, here in in this country. That makes me think that one of the big things that shapes kind of outcomes for refugees in in the U.S. is you know where they're located and and whether they're in communities. And so I'd love to get your thoughts on how you think resettlement policy should think about distributing refugees across communities or clustering them. I, I was settled here in Arlington, Virginia. Um, so my family actually started out here. This is where I went to middle school, um, and we transitioned into into Minnesota ourselves. In Minnesota, most of the Somalis um, are actually um, secondary set- settlements. Uh, they mm-hmm. they mostly get settled in in places like North Dakota or Nebraska or <laughs> California or mm-hmm. different places. Iowa actually has a huge resettlement program. Um, and so, so then they decide to move because Minnesota is a place where uh, it is it is easy to to navigate the work work environment and it's easy to um, economically thrive. And so the 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 point about clustering, I think it is is an important one because for for most of us, our successes really rely on living in in communities that that push us um, and not communities that make us feel comfortable. Um, mm-hmm. And so so I think when you are in in a huge cluster of your own community, the need to maybe even learn the learn the language or or you know um, advance uh, in 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 business opportunities, all of those things, might be hard, but your your ability to to advance yourself in entrepreneurship is easier, right? Because if you if you mm-hmm. live in a community that has ten thousand um, Somalis or Iraqi Iraqis or Syrians, it's it's easy if you open up a shop. Whereas 
if you lived in um, in a community that that didn't have majority of the people who spoke your language or or shared your identity, then it 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 might allow you to be a little more innovative in in the ways that you um, approached your your entrepreneurship uh, spirit. And so I think there is a minus and plus to both. I think there was a lot of advantages uh, for myself. Um, in starting mm-hmm. out in in a community where there was literally no Somalis, um, mm-hmm. that that initial shock, you know, al- allowed us to be resilient in the face of it, and uh, it it created a determination for all of us to thrive. Um, but the one thing I think that I I advocate for and would love to see. That, that is currently part of our policy that, that needs to change is that once you are settled in uh, a particular area with that refugee um, the resettlement agency, the initial settlement resources, so when you come to the United States, you might get a little bit of help uh, to, to getting your, your first um, apartment um, you might get help uh, in, you know, getting your social security. Those kind of resources are often tied to the resettlement agency that that settles you in mm-hmm. that particular area. So let's say if I, you know, came to the United States with my three kids and um, and I started out in a place like Texas, and I wanted to move to Mississippi or, or Florida shortly after I'd arrived because I couldn't deal with, with you know, just being alone and needed, mm-hmm. right, an auntie, an uncle, or a sister, a friend who, who I knew from those states. And I decided to, le- to leave that a week into my arrival. All of those resources go away. So once you get into that other state, you will um, have a hard time getting services and there are no resources mm-hmm. available for that. So it, it becomes challenging for a lot of uh, resettlement agencies who, who have a, a, a shared value that, that says we, we must do all that we can for refugees, they will stretch themselves thin into accommodating the, the people who are coming without their resources um, mm-hmm. because those resources don't transfer. And it sort of jams the system and it makes it hard for people to get that initial support that they need in order to get that jump start into their new life. And I think that, that that's probably where the biggest challenge is. If when you arrive here, you are able to get housed, you are able to get connected to um, an employment center, you're able to get your kids to school, you can get, you know, um, a volunteer uh, agency to help find somebody to drive you to, to work and interviews. You know, if, you, if your first mm-hmm. couple of weeks go... <laughs> perfectly, um, chances are, you know, you, you will become like my father. You'll, you'll, you'll have, you'll find yourself fully employed. You'll find yourself, um, you know, uh, paying your, your own rent and not, not, um, 
struggling and for for mm-hmm. a lot a lot of refugees that's not the case because you know we 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 lag in 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 providing those services initial services we lag in understanding some of the capabilities that some people have we lag in our understanding of the kind of like post traumatic stresses that people might be dealing mm-hmm. with so um so i would say the 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 biggest thing in 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 fixing the refugee resettlement program is figuring out how to best provide that initial um service you know that that could last up to up to six weeks um so that we have people taking full advantage of of the american life and the american dream we're going to a quick break here but we'll be back soon with congresswoman ilan omar And we're back. You're listening to Displaced with Congresswoman Ilan Omar. We've been talking to quite a few countries uh, who are looking to learn from the US experience of resettlement. So it's interesting to hear what you say about some of the strengths and weaknesses of it. If you were starting from scratch and advising a Portugal or an island or another country who were interested in expanding their resettlement program or starting a new one from scratch, what would you say they would have to get right? Ah, setting up an infrastructure um, of integrating refugees into your society. I mean, there there are people now who are working with many of the generous uh, countries around the world who accept refugees but don't have the infrastructures that we have here in the United States. So for, for a lot of them, what most of us are advising and and working with them on is to to say you know it is it's important that you create a space for for that refugee to to become part of your society that means you know you you create access for them to go to school you create access for them to find proper housing within your communities you create a space for them to become gainfully employed um, there are many countries who are extremely generous around the world who take in more refugees than we do here in the United States, which is sad. Um, but their struggles are deeply rooted in their lack of infrastructure to accommodate their big heart <laughs> and their mm-hmm, generosity. Mm-hmm. And I think we uh, sort of are having the opposite problem. We have the infrastructures and we are now closing um, the door because we have people who no longer have a big, warm heart. Yeah, let me, I'd love to kind of pull on that thread a little bit more and get your take on um, the changing politics of refugee resettlement here in the United States. Re- the United States has long been kind of uh, the stalwart, um, you know, uh, opening our doors to the largest share of refugees that are resettled globally. Um, and that's largely been a bipartisan tradition um, until it's become recently polarized. From your recent experience in Congress thus far, what are the major barriers to seeing a return to refugee resettlement as a bipartisan issue? Um, it's just it just means that we we are, you know, being morally decayed by the horrible political rhetoric that's around immigrants and refugees. It's sad because 
you know, most of the American ideals are deeply rooted in being a place that, that provides sanctuary for those that are running away from political persecution, religious persecution, you know, people who are fleeing some of the worst atrocities in the world. And now we we are using the the hopes and the dreams of 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 these people as as a parking chip um, to score political points, and we do that both in the in the left and in the right. Um, and oftentimes, uh, refugees and immigrants become a talking point for for a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know. And and I think that. <sighs> You know, 20 some years ago when I was uh, a refugee, there there were Democrats and Republicans alike who had uh, a bleeding heart for what we were experiencing, who understood that that they would be judged in the way that they received and perceived us. And I think we have moved away from that, so far away from that. And my hope is that we get a little bit closer to to what we used to be and what we should be and what we deserve to be. I get, you know, colleagues who will come up to me who will say, you know, it just dawned on me that um, that you you are a refugee who like came here as a teenager and um, you went through all of these things because I saw an interview, and and now you're you're serving with us in Congress. It, you know, the the your your resilience is unmatched, and and I and I say this is what happens when you center people in the policies that you create. We are humans who <laughs> who deserve opportunity and who when given that opportunity will live to our fullest potential um and i am an example of that uh and and i think a reminder for a lot of people here in congress who've lost their way so to what extent do you think that the increasing polarization around the question of refugees is just about how the parties and political leaders are, have changed from that bipartisan tradition, or does it reflect a genuine um, shift of public mood? So has there become a, a, a stronger public mood against refugee resettlement, and is that, and is that the reason why we're seeing um, that played out at the political level? I don't think so. I think the um, xenophobic rhetoric that many um, many people in 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 you know, political parties exhibit is is deeply rooted in their understanding of how to manipulate societies with fear. And if you are successful in in othering and and generating fear around that, um, you can set yourself up to be the savior. Um, and have people sort of uh, in a in a cult like mentality believe in your cause, and so I don't think that there is a genuine resentment or xenophobia within the the American um, society or 
or within, you know, the British society or any other um, society right now that is that is rejecting their ideals of a more tolerant, you know, inclusive society is is that way. And I think it is really a reflection uh, more so of 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 these leaders and and going back, I think, to a dark place in our history, um, in our human history, where we understood that the best way to control and move an agenda um, was to steer fear and uh, flame hate. I mean, you touched on this earlier, but one of the big trends in recent years, not just, I think, in, in the US, but across Europe, has been that um, political affiliation is increasingly driven by questions of culture and identity uh, rather than economic status. Um, and that's why this debate on refugees has become so much more salient. Um, and one question that I wrestle with is, is this, um, well, it's actually one that Francis Fukuyama has really uh, highlighted recently, which is in talking about race, gender, sexuality, or other marginalised groups like refugees, do you risk signalling to blue-collar voters that you're not hearing their concerns? And that's, a, I think, an argument that Steve Bannon has even made, saying that uh, the more the left talks about identity politics, the more um, he can clean up with a, a message to blue-collar voters. So one question I think I'd love your opinion on is, how do you mobilise a broad coalition that includes uh, the marginalised groups uh, that we need to talk about, while also building um, the coalition you need to, to win elections? So what I think really is is that there there is an opportunity for us to organize around um, what what is causing anxiety in in most of our communities when when you think about the people who are living in margins of society, they oftentimes are not thinking about who's black, who's white, who's brown, who is gay. you know those are not the questions that they have. What they're thinking about is how do I survive? How do I pay the bills? How do I make sure that my kids have access to uh, an educa- the education they deserve? How do I get myself to work? And so what the challenge is, is really to root the conversation in, in who is really responsible for our, our wealth, gap who is responsible for our inability to provide health care to everyone who is responsible for our inability to educate our kids fully and who is responsible are the leaders who oftentimes create policies that are not impactful in creating prosperity for for all of us and we are distracted um, by by the chaos of us versus them, and we are not in tuned uh, to, you know, the heist that's really happening by many members um, of of the political elite who are enriching themselves, enriching their friends, and and are are furthering policies that allow them to stay in power. So our war is not really with with each other. Um, it is with the status quo. It is with uh, mon- money in politics. It's with corruption. It's with you know anti-democracy. <laughs> it's with you know people who who are uh, against creating a society that is that is just and and fair for all of us. 
And I think that that ability to really communicate that kind of uh, politics is is what probably is going to save us for the current nightmare we're in. Thank you so much for being with us, Congresswoman. Thank you so much for having me. This was a really important conversation. I look forward to chatting with you all soon. That was Congresswoman Ilan Omar. If you want any more on the topics we discussed today, check out our show notes on www.rescue.org displaced. Let's just take a second there. That was an awesome interview. I've never talked with a congresswoman before. Uh, tweet at us. I'm Grant M. Gordon. And I'm at Agra Murthy. Email us at displaceatrescue.org or leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you're thinking, who you'd like to see on the show, and as always, your big life dreams. At Vox Media, Displaced is produced by Megan Cunane. Our engineer is Jelani Carter. Golda Arthur is our senior producer, but she hasn't been seen in weeks. I actually don't even know if she produces podcasts anymore. Should we just take her out of this credit role? I mean, I don't know why we put her in. Yeah, that's, that seems right. That seems right. Nishak Kurwa is our executive producer of audio. At the IRC, Anna Fuhrer is our researcher. A special thanks to Alex Bandea, Natalie Sarkowski, and Ben Moskovitz. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.